We're uh, continuing in a series uh, on what makes up a healthy church. If you've been here the last few weeks, we started this as a summer series. We want to just understand what a healthy church looks like uh, so that we can function at our uh, optimum. So we're functioning the way God intended His church to function. And so that's what we want to look at. We've looked at a, a few marks so far. We've uh, talked about um, the mark of expository preaching. The church believes and rests upon the authority of the Word of God, and so we want to proclaim that in a setting in which we understand the intent of the author when he wrote it, but also bridging the gap so that the people also understand the intention that God has for you now. And so expository preaching is one of the the, the key marks. It's really the first mark of what a healthy church is and what a healthy church does. We looked at uh, biblical theology, which is really um, a a broad understanding of the fact that this, this book that we have is not just a human book, it's a divine book, and it has one point. And that point is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at, at uh, the, the flow of redemptive history that's outlined in the Bible, and we saw the point of, of uh, the Bible from beginning to end points to Jesus Christ. That God had a plan from the very beginning. Nothing happened outside of his control. And so a, a church that is healthy is a church that has an understanding of the broad view and the point of this book. And that led us to a, a third mark, which was uh, something that Pete Johnson uh, the last couple of weeks brought out, and that was that a, a healthy church has a, a sound and clear understanding of what the gospel is, that the gospel is a, a, uh, an act in which a person places their trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on the cross on their behalf. That they're saying, I, I know I cannot save myself. I cannot do anything on my own to, to merit eternal life that I have to rely completely on uh, the blood of Christ and his death and his resurrection to save me. And so the gospel is uh, really what marks a church from a non-church, really, if you want to get down to it. And that led us to a fourth mark, which was uh, the mark of conversion. That healthy church has a clear understanding of conversion. So we've looked at those, and now we're on to um, the, the next mark of a healthy church, and that flows actually out of the topic of conversion. It's, it's the, the topic of, of church membership. A healthy church is marked by the practice of church membership. Now, for some of you, I, I know that you, you might, that might come as a surprise. Membership seems like a small thing compared to when we're talking about the gospel or we're talking about uh, conversion and then we're talking about membership and, and it's there, maybe there's a disconnect. Why, why are these things on the same level, on the same plane? Why are we talking about them as if they're equals? And uh, I know for others of you, you m- might even question whether or not church membership is really a and uh, explicit biblical concept at all. And so I, I understand uh, maybe some of those questions, and I want to address those questions. We're going to do that over the next two weeks. I'm going to, well, my goal is this morning is to lay a foundation for what membership is so that uh, by next week, uh, Pastor Steve Hatter is going to come, and he's going to really lay out the practicalities of what church membership looks like. But before we can do that, we really have to lay a foundation. We have to understand what the church is. And, and to do that, um, I want to start by uh, 
doing a little sketch of uh, a profile of three different kinds or types of Christians that are in our culture today. The consumer Christian, the distracted Christian, and the isolated Christian. Start with the consumer Christian. Consumer Christian shops for a church the way he shops for a car or, um, or a house. He's looking for a church that meets his needs. He's got a list of what he likes, a list of what he doesn't like, and he, he is basing his uh, decision for the church that he is a part of based on um, what uh, that church can offer him. Maybe it's um, shorter sermons. Why do you laugh? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's... Uh, uh, Explicitly contemporary music, no, no, uh, no hymns. Maybe it's just hymns, and, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's a quieter setting. Uh, maybe it's uh, more lights and, and drama. Maybe it's entertainment, or or maybe it's something else. But uh, he has a list of things that, he, that are on his wish list, on his desired list. He's looking for a church that uh, that meets his needs, and when he finds a church he likes, he commits to it, but his commitment lasts only as long as the church meets his needs. And he is more than willing to, if necessary, trade his, um, his church in for a different church, one that's going to uh, give him what, his, what he's, he's looking for. And so for him, membership really seems a bit forward. After all, why should I join a church? Isn't the church there to meet my needs, to serve me, to, to meet my spiritual needs. And so membership is, is kind of a disconnect. Now, on the other hand, that, that's the consumer Christian. There, there is the distracted Christian, or, or maybe you could call it the, the confused Christian. And uh, the confused Christian, she's maybe driven by a, a particular interest. Maybe it's a Bible study or... or uh, she's got a, a heart to feed the poor or evangelize college students in a college ministry. And so uh, maybe she can find one of those interests at a local church, but maybe she doesn't even have to. Maybe the, the, the local college campus ministry has everything that, that she needs and what she's looking for in terms of, of ministry. And so uh, as, after all, she thinks as, you know, as long as we're ministering with Christians, that's really all that matters. We're all, we're all the church. And so... Um, this type of Christian might easily end up um, devoting a majority of her time ministering and, 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 and giving her energy to maybe a parachurch ministry. Or maybe, maybe she's in a local church, but her, her focus and, and, and her energies and all of her time are really uh, directed towards just one area of, of the church, whatever area that she f- finds it her particular interest in, whether it be children's ministry or whatever. And so for her, membership seems unnecessary. After all, you know, she's here on Sunday, so really, you know, her, her heart is on the campus ministry or, or this, so, but you know, she's here on Sunday, but, but why, why is it necessary? So that's the, the confused Christian, the, 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 the Christian that really doesn't have a really good understanding of what the local church really is. And, but then that leads us to a third category, and I think this is one that in the last 15 years has skyrocketed, and it has to do with the amount of uh, material that is being put online, and that's the solitary Christian, the lone wolf Christian. 
He, he might not even go to church. After all, the traditional church is stuffy. The contemporary church is fake. And so he's seeking authentic Christianity. And so maybe he gets everything he needs from YouTube. After all, the great preachers put all their stuff on there. I can get fed from my living room in my pajamas, drinking my coffee. Why would I need to go to a church? It does sound nice. But maybe he doesn't even do that. Maybe, maybe even the idea of listening to sermons isn't really all that necessary. Maybe he's it, it just he, he hangs out with his home group. They talk about Christian things, and that's his church. That's real life Christianity. And so, to him, membership seems somewhat laughable. It really represents what he despises about the institutionalized church. And so all these, these profiles are profiles that are live and well in our kind of Christian milieu of, of the, the Christian culture. Uh, they are products of our culture, and I think that we um, can't be naive to assume that we are not products of our culture, that we are not influenced by what our culture thinks and what it is and, and uh, what it tends towards, but uh, I think what these profiles do is they reveal a fundamental misunderstanding of something. They fundamentally misunderstand what the church is, what its responsibility is, and what I as a Christian, what my responsibility is to the church. And I am convinced that that is the reason we don't understand membership. And so that's what I want to try to do this morning, is, is to give us a, more of a foundational understanding of what the church is, what its responsibility is, and what I as a Christian am responsible to the church for. And so I, I want to give us um, this morning two fundamental truths about the church that, uh, that help us understand the importance of church membership. Two fundamental truths. And the first truth is this. The church is not a voluntary association. The church is not a voluntary association. Most people in Western societies uh, tend to view the church and group it into one of two categories. Either they, they group it into um, a club, right? It's a, it's a group of people who share a common interest, and maybe that common interest is uh, religious things. Maybe the common interest is Jesus. Maybe the common interest is feeding uh, the, the, the poor and dealing with poverty. Or maybe the common interest is uh, political activism. Uh, but, but a lot of our Western society views the church as just a club, a club that is filled with people who are just like-minded and want to hang out together and have common interests, now, another way that Western society views the church is that it is a service provider. It's a business that seeks to meet the needs of customers. So membership, if you're thinking about it from that perspective, the way Western society views the church as a club or a service provider, membership is completely optional. It, it, it just makes sense. You join a church like you join a gym, or you join a soccer club, or you join a charity organization. Membership is optional. It's completely up to you and completely up to your interests. Or you join a gym like you join, or you join a church like you join a Costco. As long as it, it has what you need and it has what you're looking for and, and its products are right for you, um, you buy in, you join. 
And at the center of these views of, of the church, for this Western view of the church, is this cultural, two cultural principles, individualism, consumerism. And they really go hand in hand. Consumer, individualism is at the heart. Individualism says, I am my own authority, right? I, I am my own authority. I am the only one that can say what I want to do, and, and I, I'm the only one that has authority over myself. And consumerism is a bright product of that. If I <clears throat> have authority over myself, then everything is ultimately there to serve me. And so those two things drive the culture that we live in now, okay? And that's the reason why the culture will view the church as nothing more than a club or a business. But if you're a Christian, the church is not a club to join. And the church is not a service provider. We aren't a church's customers. If you're a Christian... Okay, understand this. This is foundational principle number one. If you are a Christian, you are already a member of the church. You are already a member of the church. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Just think for a moment of what happened, what happened when you became a Christian. What happened when, when, when you were converted, when you placed your faith in Christ? What happened in that moment? This is something that, that Pete Johnson talked about last week. He talked about conversion as a mark of a healthy church. Conversion basically is the reality that man by himself is he's dead in his sins. He's unable to respond to God. He doesn't want to respond to God. He's an enemy of God. He hates God. And so God, in the process of salvation, intervenes into that person's life, gives them spiritual life again. He he awakens the heart. He turns his affections from going against God to being for God. That's the the process of regeneration. That God goes in and changes the heart, changes the disposition of the soul to want God rather than to reject God. Gives him the gifts of faith and repentance, and that's conversion. Conversion. That's conversion, that process. And one of the most amazing things that happens when you were converted as a Christian, one of the most amazing things was that when you were converted, you were joined to Christ in an amazing union, the union of Christ. You were inseparably united to Jesus Christ. Your life became his life and his life became your life. I don't, you know, talk about... When we read our scripture passage, Ephesians 3, the height and depth, and I don't even really comprehend what my union to Christ really looks like. But I know it's there. There's this intimate union between you and Christ. So Paul can say something like in Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ is your life. You're, you're no longer living. It's Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Wow. So there is this incredible union between Christ and the believer, where, where his life is ours, our life is his, and all 
the parts of the, the, the most important parts of our salvation are wrapped up into our union with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, starting in verse 3. Paul writes this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So because we're united to Christ, when he was crucified, we were crucified with him. When when he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. And when he was enthroned in heaven, Paul says in Colossians 3, we're enthroned in heaven with him. That's our union with Christ. Just blow your mind. It blows my mind. It's our basis for our justification. It's our basis for our sanctification, for our ongoing being made more like Christ is based on our union with Him. It's a basis for our glorification. But there's something else you need to understand. When your union with Christ is a two-for-one deal, it's a package. Because when you're saved, you're not only united with Christ, but you're also united with everyone else who is a Christian. You're not alone in this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So when you were united together with Christ, you were also baptized into one body, which is the church. Romans 12.5 says the same thing. So we, though many are one body in Christ, there's our union, and individually members one of another. Ephesians 4.4 says it this way, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's the baptism of 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. You were baptized into one body, and that body is the church. So the union, this union that we have, I mean, it's, it is a union that is everything to do with our salvation, but it has everything to do with what we are doing here right now. If you are a Christian, you are baptized into the body of Christ, and therefore you are a part of the church. This union is captured beautifully in the words of a hymn that we, we sang not, a couple weeks ago. It's called The Church is One Foundation, verse 2 should be familiar to you. It's as um, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Or charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. In verse 4 of that hymn, 
It says this, yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one. How do we have union with God, the three in one? Through our union with Jesus Christ. But what comes with that? The next line, and mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. There is this union, this unity that every single Christian has because we are all together, united together in one body with Jesus Christ as the head. But if you understand conversion, you understand you didn't join this body voluntarily, right? That was the whole point of Pete's message last week. Conversion, regeneration, is a sovereign act of God. He had to change your heart. He moved to change your heart and convert you so that when you cried out, save me, in that moment of your conversion, you were added to the church. That's not a voluntary membership. You were added because God wanted you in the church and saved you. You were placed in this group through the sovereign act of God. Your heart was awakened. You were transformed in your affections. You were enabled to repent of your sins. You, you placed your trust for salvation and Christ's death on the cross. The, the church is not a voluntary association. It's a group of people who have been saved by the gospel, united with Christ and united together in one body. So if you're a Christian, you are a member of the church. And that begs a question. So why are we talking about church membership now? I should be sat. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, that's, that brings us to a second point. If, the, if uh, the church is not a voluntary association, if we are already a member, here's the second point that you need to understand. The church is the highest kingdom authority on this earth. The highest kingdom authority on this earth. Now, what is, in the world does that have to do with membership? Well, just hang on a second. And we're we're going we're gonna to build an argument, but it, it, it'll take a, a little bit of time. So just bear with me and, and, um, and think with me here. Our, our lives are consistently lived out in a certain spheres of authority. I mean, consider the life of a typical individual. I mean, what, what authorities govern their life? If they're in a family, then there's children and then there are parents, right? There, there's this authority structure within the nuclear family. If, if you have a job... There is an authority structure in your employment so that you answer to your employer. And really, you know, we're, we're living in a state, we're living in a nation, and so we, we answer to the authority of, uh, of a government. So for the average person, the highest authority really that we can really point to in our lives is the state. The state is the authority to which all other authorities really answer to. It's the, where the buck stops. Families answer to the state. They answer to the state about how they raise their kids. They answer to the state about whether or not they pay their taxes. 
Businesses, schools exist by permission of the state. So for the average person, the highest authority in their lives that governs their lives is the state. Christians recognize a higher authority, right? A higher authority. We recognize the state exists because because God allows it to exist. And and we recognize, Romans chapter 13, that uh, that the, the state is... A, uh, an agent or a servant of God, but it, its authority is not intrinsic in and of itself. Its authority has been given to it by God, and so we recognize God is above government. And as Christians, we recognize that Christ has ultimate authority. Jesus said himself in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. But we don't recognize this. And when Jesus instituted the church... Jesus instituted it with an authority as well. And that's something we have to wrap our our minds around for a second. We have no problem recognizing Jesus as sovereign, but, uh, but I don't know whether or not we recognize that Christ has instituted his church with an authority. And so I want to show you that and uh, kind of unpack this a little bit by uh, turning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is where we're going to start. In Matthew chapter 16, in um, verse 13, it says, now, Jesus, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now the context for this, Caesarea Philippi, was uh, kind of the crossroads of pagan culture. All of the various idols... Uh, all of the various gods uh, that uh, represented uh, paganism were there. So it was a, a perfect place for Jesus to do uh, really a very meaningful test for whether or not his disciples were tracking with their, uh, with their training that they had been receiving from him. It's a perfect place to ask them the most important question they have ever had to answer, which is, who do people say that I am? Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or or one of the prophets. But uh, in verse 15, he he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Here is the test. Are they going to pass? Simon Peter, verse 16, replies, he steps up. This is replying uh, not just on his own, but he's representing all the disciples, when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Did he pass the test? Jesus answered him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first mention of church in Scripture. And it's in the context 
of a clear, definitive statement from the spokesman of his disciples who answered the question, who do you say that I am? And he answered it right. The foundation of the church, as Jesus says, rests upon the question of, who do people say that I am? The foundation of the church, the foundation upon which Christ is building his church, is the foundation of the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then this happens, and this is where we're getting into the idea of authority. Because with that in mind, he's building his church upon the, cl- the, the clarity of the declared gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says in verse 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like authority or what? And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you have this statement in which Christ is building his church upon the truth of who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the church has the authority, the keys to the kingdom, to declare and and say you are bound in your sin or you are loosed from your sin based on whether or not a person, how a person answers the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And your answer to that will determine where you are spiritually and what Jesus is saying is that the authority he has given to the church is to bind and loose people based on how they answer that question. To put it simply, it's the clarity of the gospel. It's the clarity of the gospel. Christ gave the church the, the enforcement mechanism for deciding, among other things, who's publicly recognized as a citizen of the kingdom. Now, the church doesn't make someone saved. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that the the church makes a person saved. Only faith in Jesus Christ makes a person saved. But the church is given the authority and the responsibility to recognize that salvation based on their response to what the gospel is. That's the enforcement mechanism. Now, here's the catch. And here's, here's where we have to make a huge shift in our understanding. I don't, I don't know about you, but the, I've never seen a universal church headquarters. Have you? Now, there is one for the Roman Catholic Church. It's one of the, the, the major things that, that differentiates the true church from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has a headquarters, and it's in Rome. And the Pope is the head. But that's, that's not the way that Scripture talks about the church. When we're talking about the church, we're not talking about the universal church. We're talking about the local church. And that's what we have to understand. That we, yes, we have been baptized into one body, the church. But that church is expressed in a particular place through the local church. The local church 
is not um, just a collection of churches that when you all add them up together, it equals the whole universal church. It's not the way that Scripture talks about it. The Scripture talks about the local church as being God's church in a particular location so that he can say, the church of God that is in Corinth. The church of God that is in Philippi. The local church is the church in that location. And that's what we have to understand. That the, the authority that we see given to the church in Matthew 16 is not an authority that's exercised by some universal headquarters. It is a, an authority that is exercised by a local church. And with that, I want to introduce a paradigm for the way that we can think about the local church. And this is one that's uh, it's not, I have to give credit where credit's due. This is not uh, my, um, my invention, but it, it's an invention, uh, or at least a helpful way of thinking about the church by a man named Jonathan Lehman, who's of no, uh, uh, no uh, relation to our Lehman family that we have here. Uh, but he has written a book called Church Membership that I highly encourage you to get. It's in the back. It's on the bookshelf back there. This is a fantastic book. You, ha- you need to read this. And, uh, and I, I really want to borrow his, his paradigm for how he understands the local church and its relationship to authority. Because this is going to be what, uh, what is going to turn our thinking in, ter- in terms of thinking about membership the right way. And the paradigm that he introduces is this, the paradigm of an embassy. Now, what, what is an embassy? An embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. Okay? It represents one nation inside another nation. It declares uh, its home nation's interests to a host nation. And it protects the citizens of, uh, of the home nation living in a host nation. So, so you have an embassy that is in a, a, a foreign nation, and that embassy is there to represent the nation that it comes from and to protect its citizens. And that paradigm really offers a corrective for how we view the church and membership. Lehman writes it this way. He says, when people ask where is membership in the Bible, the problem is they're looking for something like a club to join because the word membership is a club word. Clubs and political parties and labor unions have memberships, but you don't often use the, the word membership in relation to governments and the citizens of nations. You don't say, how's the membership of the British nation doing? You know, aren't you guys running like 60 million members these days? And you, don't, you don't hear us talking, you're not going to hear the news talking about how many members the United States has. He continues, clubs begin with a point of common interest. Service providers begin with a common need or desire. Churches have all this, but they have something more. A king who requires obedience from his people. The church begins with this fact. Jesus is the Savior and he is Lord. And he has died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would believe and follow him. And so then he says this statement. This is important. This means the Bible doesn't talk about church membership quite as you might want it to. It talks instead about how God's people gather together under his supreme rule. 
It's interested in the citizens of a kingdom, not club members. So think about that for a moment. Think about that in the context of Matthew chapter 16. You are, what? The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that has come to rule from God. That's royal terminology. Christ is interested in the citizens of a kingdom. We are citizens of our nation, obviously. Some of, most of us here are citizens of the United States. I know we have lots that travel over the summer, and so maybe that you are here from a foreign nation. Maybe you're a citizen of a different nation. Uh, maybe you're here on work or, or just to vacation. Welcome, by the way. Welcome to Alaska. You missed a really good week last week. <laughs> but we're citizens of our nations. We have a national identity. We have a, a, a state that we um, answer to that has authority over us, that, that regulates our lives as, uh, as citizens. But the state also officially and publicly affirms our citizenship. So when you get a passport... What are you getting? You are getting an official document that's produced by your government saying this person is a United States citizen and he's entitled to the rights and the privileges of United States citizenship and if you get into trouble in a foreign country, that passport and the embassy there can be your best friend. And when you get your passport for the first time, it's not making you a citizen, right? You're already a citizen. All the, all the country is doing, all the, the, the state is doing is recognizing that you and affirming, yes, this person is a citizen and we're giving you a document that certifies it. Now think about that. Think about that in the context of being a Christian. If you're a Christian, yeah, you're, you're a citizen of this nation, or whatever nation that you live in, but you're a citizen of a different nation, are you not? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, he says. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved sons. We're, we're citizens of a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And when we're saved and and we join the the citizenship of all the saints who have uh, believed down through the ages, everyone is a citizen of of heaven who who has believed in Jesus Christ. uh, Ephesians 2.19 says, Then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So so we have a different citizenship as, as believers in Christ. We have our earthly citizenship, but we have a citizenship that means a whole lot more. We have a heavenly citizenship. And so as citizens of heaven, we understand that we belong to a kingdom that's not here yet. It's a future kingdom. It's a kingdom that has yet to come. And so we're citizens. We're citizens here on this earth, and we're waiting 
We're waiting for a, a, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to come and he's going to bring his kingdom. We're waiting for, as Revelation eleven fifteen puts it, the kingdom of the world when it becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and when he will reign forever and ever. We're waiting for Philippians 2, 10 and 11 to happen when every knee bows in heaven and on earth and, every, and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're waiting for that because we know that hasn't happened yet. Our citizenship is a future kingdom, a kingdom that's not here yet. And so what does that make us? That makes us, 1 Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles. We're, we're in foreign territory. We're on this earth, we're citizens of heaven, but we're walking in foreign territory. We're, we're in a different country We recognize we're not home yet. We join the the many saints who have come before us who, um, according to Hebrews 11, verse 13, says, acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens, strangers and exiles on the earth. We long, uh, along with them, we're, we're seeking a homeland. And we recognize that the land in which we live now, the, na- the nation of our earthly citizenship, it really, it's not our true homeland. We're, we're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. That's, we, we, we know that. We, we feel that. We, we know and we recognize that we're in the present, citizens of something in the future. We're foreigners in this world And it's a world that is hostile to us. It's a world that is hostile to the kingdom that we belong to and to what it represents. We feel that. And so with that in mind, you're strangers and aliens on this earth. You don't belong here. Your home's somewhere else. Your citizenship is somewhere else. You're strangers and aliens. It's a hostile world. So where are you going to go to for asylum? Where are you going to run to for refuge? Where are you going to go to to... That fellowship with, uh, with other citizens. Where are you going to go to to find um, recognition and affirmation that I am indeed a citizen? Where are you going to go to? We go to the kingdom's embassy. We go to the local church. Lehman writes this. The local church represents Christ's rule now. It affirms and protects its citizens now. It, protect, it proclaims his laws now. It bows before him as king now and calls all peoples to do the same. A local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal church. That is the local church. Now, understand this, that the, the church is not the kingdom. It's not the same thing as the kingdom. The church represents the kingdom. The kingdom is future. But the church is here and now representing that kingdom. So when you're a Christian and you, and you darken the doors of Anchorage Grace Church and you come in those doors, it's like you're walking through the doors of an embassy of Christ's kingdom, proclaiming citizenship in the kingdom. You're saying, I am a Christian. 
I am a citizen. And Christ has given the local church, according to Matthew 16, Christ has given the local church the authority and the responsibility of identifying and affirming who belongs to the kingdom and who doesn't. Now, how do they do that? How do they do that? It's Matthew 16. Let's read it again. He says in verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The question is, who do you say that I am? The question is, what is the gospel and have you believed it? And your response to that question is the determiner of whether or not you're in the kingdom or not and the church has the responsibility of affirming or saying, I I don't know. I've asked them that question and but I'm not getting the right answer. I'm not getting a clear answer that they have really affirmed and, and accepted the gospel. So a church, a church fulfills its responsibility through the clarity of the gospel, through, through the clarity of the word of God. That's the authority. It's, it's answering the question, who do you say that I am? When a person professes Christ, when they claim to be a citizen of the kingdom, but they don't live that profession out, when their profession doesn't match their life, then the church has the authority and the responsibility to rescind that affirmation. Turn a couple of chapters over to chapter 18. I'm not going to talk on this a lot because this is uh, something that we will touch on later in a different mark of, um, of church health. But I just want to point something out because it has to do, have everything to do with authority. It says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the what? To the church. Tell it to the local church. And what happens if they don't listen to the church? If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then here, this, this statement should sound awfully familiar to you. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whether, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same language used in Matthew 16 to talk about the foundation of the church. That's authority. It means that the church has the authority and the responsibility to affirm, recognize and affirm the citizens of heaven. But also, it has the responsibility of saying, we don't have confidence anymore. Like, we, we've appealed and we've appealed and we've appealed and, and, and they refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, we're, we're rescinding our, your passport. We're, we're, we don't have confidence in your citizenship because of, you are refusing the sovereignty of God over your life. That's the authority that the, the church is... McGiven. And, and here's, that's a big responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And churches don't always get it 100% right. Church, they don't. But it's a responsibility they, 
they have to try as best they can. That's why part of membership at Anchorage Grace Church involves having an interview. And it's, it sounds like a formal thing, but it's not. It's, it's not really intended to be formal. All it is is an opportunity to ask, what's your testimony? Tell, tell us, how did you come to know Christ? Well, who do you say that Jesus is? Those are the kind of questions that, that you get asked in membership because that's exactly what determines whether or not a person is a citizen or not, a citizen of heaven or not. And, uh, and we're, not, we're not asking those questions because we doubt your testimony or we doubt yourself. It's not that at all. It's just we want to get it right. We, we want to be careful. We want to be good stewards. We want to do what the church's responsibility is. And so we just want to know. We want to be able... To say, yes, we've heard this person's testimony, we've heard their profession of faith, and we affirm they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want to say that. And sometimes in the course of that conversation, um, we might have to spend a little bit more time, maybe come back and have another conversation just because maybe it wasn't quite clear. And, and that can happen sometimes if you're a new Christian and you uh, maybe you don't know all of the lingo yet, you don't quite know how to articulate your faith and articulate the gospel, but you know it and you love it and you have accepted it. And so we help you think through how that so that, but so that we're clear and you're clear. And it's just part of the process. But, but sometimes, sometimes that process ends and we have to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't think, I, I don't think that you really understand the gospel. I, I don't think that you're a believer. And that's, that's a good thing that the church needs to do. Because you don't, you don't want to have a person who isn't a believer have affirmation that they are because that gives them a false sense of, of security, right? They're, they're walking around and they've got their passport, but they're not a true citizen. And so they're, they're falsely affirmed. They're, they have confidence that they shouldn't have. That You don't want an unbeliever to have confidence in their salvation if they're not truly saved. And on the flip side, it's, it's not good for the church either. Because an unbeliever is going to live like an unbeliever, and eventually that will affect the church. It'll affect the church's testimony. So that's why we want to be careful. That's why we ask the questions that we do. So this, this embassy paradigm, this way of thinking about the church, it really is... Um, a reorientation of our understanding of church membership. Being a member doesn't, it doesn't mean you're signing up for an interest group. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you're patronizing the church like you're a customer of a business. This is what a church member is, as Lehman puts it. A church member is someone who walks through the, do- the embassy doors claiming to belong to the kingdom of Christ. Hello, my name is Christian. And the embassy official taps a few keys on his computer and then says, Yep, I see your records. Here's your passport. The individual can now enjoy many of the rights and benefits and obligations of citizenship, even though living in a foreign land. But not only that, here's the crazy part this is incredible. The individual becomes a part of the embassy itself. One of the officials who affirms and oversees others. To be a church member is to be the church, at least a part of it. So in other words, if you're a a part of the church, if if you're a part of this local church, 
We are the church here. It's no, so it's not just the pastors who are responsible and the elders who are responsible for this exercising of authority. This is something we all share as members of the church. We are all a part of this. That's why you don't tell it to the elders in Matthew 18. You tell it to the church. And the church goes after that person calling them back because we're all in this together. So to put it succinctly, a church member is a person who's been officially and publicly recognized as a Christian before the nations as well as someone who shares in the same authority of officially affirming and overseeing other Christians in his or her church. Now, a member is more than that. A member, that's where all of the other, um, the other metaphors of the Bible come in. I mean, the, the, the church is a family. And so we, we relate to each other as family, as brothers and sisters. There's familial love and warmth, and that's, that's part of membership. We, we are a, a body. We have different parts and different strengths and different giftings, and we're all, we're all working together as one body. And so that's part of membership too. And, and we're, we're all a, a flock that is together following leadership, following uh, the, the, the chief shepherd and its under-shepherds. We're, that's, that's all part of what membership is, and we're going to unpack that next week. Uh, Steve Hatter's going to do that. Uh, he's going to look at the practicality of church membership. But viewing this through the paradigm of the, 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 the embassy really is the first step in reforming what can be a culturally warped view of church membership. And I don't want us to have that. Lehman put it this way. The embassy-like authority of the local church gives individuals who mouth the words, I'm with Jesus, the opportunity to demonstrate that those words mean something. The local church guards the reputation of Christ by sorting out true professors from the false. The local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and not a forgery. And the local church lays down a pathway for, with guardrails and resting stations for the long journey of the Christian life. He says the king's and governors of the nation are not careless about whom they recognize as citizens. Would the king of the universe care less? So when I'm in a foreign country, and I've traveled a fair amount, not as often as maybe some of you, but when I'm in a foreign country and I have my passport, I am absolutely comforted to know that when something goes wrong, there's something that happens. There is a place that I can go to. There's a place that I can go to where I can, I can open the doors to that place and I can say, I'm a United States citizen. And they say, and they look at my passport and they're going to say, yes, you are, and we're going to protect you. Uh, that, that's an absolute comfort to me. And likewise, as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven, as sojourners and exiles in a hostile foreign country called the earth, you know, it comforts me. It comforts me to know there's a place I can go and I can say I'm a Christian. And I can enter in through those doors and, and they're going to hear my testimony and they're going to say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And we're going to protect you and we're going to strengthen you and we're going to stand with you because you're a citizen of the kingdom. That's the local church. That's what being a member of the local church is. It's a place 
to go for refuge. I close with um, the words of Charles Spurgeon. We talked about uh, church membership. This is what he had to say. I close with this. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect church after I had become a member of it. But here's the most important thing he has to say. Still imperfect as it is, it is the most dearest place on earth for us.